0: Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing today and those that came before it, so fair warning, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we're discussing today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show which he watched about a decade ago. Today, we're going to be discussing Ned 3 and Bran 3 of the Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm good. I'll I'll have you know. Uh, one of these chapters is the chapter I was most excited to do on this podcast for this book. Uh, actually, that may not be true. We've got a long way to go, but at least so far, this is this is where I was really pumped to get to.
1: Well, I hope it's not the first chapter that we read because I thought that was boring. <laughs>
0: it is not the first chapter we read. Okay, uh, great. <laughs> how dare you say the death of Lady is boring?
1: No, you know what? I'm well, why don't we get there and I will tell you all the things that I have to tell you. Yeah, so we uh let's see, we, we left we left off on a on a bit of a cliffhanger after the last episode going into this this boring chapter, as I was saying. Although you seem to be Again, really how attached to Lady. Are um, you um, Lady is the boringest bast- of the
0: dogs of the dire wolves? Uh, you heartless bastard.
1: Okay, 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 let's back up. Let's back up. We ended the last the last chapter that we spoke about, uh, last the last chapter that we spoke about on last episode was Sansa One. And for the first time we're getting into Sansa's perspective. And from that, she's having this wonderful day being courted by Joffrey. However, it is absolutely ruined as they come across her younger sister, Arya, who is trying to train uh, like in dueling and swords with her newfound friend Micah, or as I like to call him in the fantasy term, uh, and it's, again, uh,
0: it's not, it's just spelled normally, whatever it's, it's no, Catlin, not Caitlin. It's uh, a regular name, so's Caitlin. So, I've
1: decided that all names are now fair game. But, uh, Sansa and Joffrey on their timeout, uh, together they come across Arya, who is sort of practicing dueling with her newfound friend, the butcher's boy Joffrey takes his sort of arrogant stance and says, ah, here's a butcher's boy hitting on my soon-to-be stepsister, I guess. I will show a revenge or whatever it happens to be. And basically starts to torture this little meet, meet Micah character. Um, and uh, and Arya kind of comes to my, her friend's defense and basically beats Joffrey. Uh, Nymeria, her direwolf, jumps on Joffrey and bites into him. And things sort of end there with Joffrey kind of cursing Arya and cursing Sansa and basically saying, I hate yeah,
0: and Arya and Arya throwing his
1: sword into the river. That's right. Uh, the sword whose name I forget, although it will be brought up. Lion's but, teeth. Oh, yeah. Lion's tooth. But from that, we then jump right into the next chapter that kicks off us off here, which is Ned Stark, Eddard 3, I think at this point. Yeah. Ned 3. Uh, Ned 3. is our
0: first chapter.
1: And we find a few things really out very quickly. Basically, it has been a few days since this last event happened yes. between Arya, Sansa, and Joffrey. And Arya ran away. She basically kind of disappeared. She's gone. You know, she knows that what happened is not good. There's yeah. been searches, searches for her from both the Stark side, uh, Ned having his people go search for, as well as the Cersei Lannister side. And there's sort of been a bit of a race. And Ned is a little uh, concerned about who might find Arya. Yeah.
0: It's crazy to me. We, we hear that this is four days since the fight happened, which is an incredibly long time for anybody, let alone a small child to like exist out in the woods and to survive in the woods. Uh, so it really does. It adds some layers to it. I mean, you can really feel Ned's fear in terms of the Queen's men finding her first, but also, I mean, just, just scared for his daughter at this point. Like she has run away from home and she's been gone for a while.
1: And we find out really right at the very, the chapter even opens with, they found her. Uh, And so Ned is now getting the good news of finding her and then kind of sharing with us, the audience, you know, that he's been on search parties for the last three days. And that today, day four, he's pretty worn, not worn out by it, but just emotionally, absolutely drained. Yeah. And specifically, it's his people that have found her, not the Lannisters. Unfortunately, though, as they come through the gates of where they're staying for this moment uh it cersei's lannister you know cersei lannister's people are manning those gates so even though it was ned's fit like people who found aria uh she wasn't being able to be brought straight to him but instead right in front of basically a tribunal which is where he rushes to go right i will point out that uh, I, i'm going to mention this because i want to bring it up again in just a moment uh, but uh, he, even in this moment of familial distress, he is hyper aware of his position as the hand of the king. And the line that I wanted to say is that, uh, point out he he would have run, but he was still the king's hand, and a hand must keep his dignity. Um, and so still the sense of honor and honor towards the position and role that he has, but his fatherly instincts are definitely sort of raging as he's getting his way to this uh, tribunal.
0: Yeah, and this is an interesting moment for Ned because it it is both his political instincts and and his honorable side, but also it's just an intelligent move. I mean, with Arya being brought before the king, it's going to be all about appearances. He needs to be able to uh approach this level-headedly and uh give the political impression that he's trying to give off in order to get the results that he's looking for. Well, he sucks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh <laughs> Yeah, before we get to Robert, we just get a little bit of an aside about where they are, which I thought exactly. was interesting. Sir Raymond Derry. Yes. Yeah. And so the Derrys are a house in the Riverlands, and they were importantly on the side of the Targaryens in Robert's Rebellion. Uh, we learned that Raymond Derry's three older brothers died at the Trident uh and so you know you have to assume that's how he became the Lord which gives us a little bit of a parallel to Ned who only took over as Mm. the head of the Stark family when Brandon died but it's also an interesting moment we know that in thoughts about the war previously the Riverlands were were with them that led by the Tullys and so this was a house that broke with their leadership This was a house that decided to stick to their vows, to their obligations to the crown over their obligations to their liege lord and took that approach. So you have to, I wonder if there is some level of impact that that had on how Robert and Ned are viewing them, that it wasn't just that they sided with the other side, but they actually broke with some of their political obligations to do so.
1: Ned even makes a comment here in this, even the small paragraph towards the end, uh, where he starts to point at. Mentally, the factions that are here in a tight space. Uh, you, what was it, with the kingsmen, dairymen, Lannistermen, and Starkmen all crammed into a castle far too small for them, tensions burned hot and heavy. Yeah. Uh and I just thought interesting as well to sort of see this differentiation that he's making, and he has been making for a while between kingsmen, Lannistermen, and Starkmen is that, you know, even though this is a kingdom and this is, you know, everybody's supposedly united. Uh, it's clear that he still sees very strong distinctions and delineations between these folk. With that said, they he gets to the room. It is if the castle's crammed, the room is crammed even more so, and uh, we get sort of our cast of characters: the king sitting on a sort of impromptu throne, uh, Cersei is there, Joffrey is there, bandaged, bandaged with silken bandages, uh, Arya in not the bad. center. Not bad. At,
0: he, I'll take it. Where were you during COVID, silk and bandages? But Arya sort of... leading the... bleeding from COVID, I'm concerned. I don't think that's one what of is the symptoms. Not? Well, I, I need to see a doctor, I think is what we're saying. <laughs> uh, the mm-hmm.
1: But basically, it's a trial. Uh, this is a small trial about, about a small girl. Uh, Joffrey sort of kicks things off. By shouting out, that, uh, shouting out a story that we did not witness, sort of a different version of the story. He was ganged up upon. They beat him with clubs, Aria and uh, whatever what the boy's a, name is.
0: What a Maika. wonderfully euphemistic way you phrased that. That, was, that was so even-handed. A story we did not witness. He's lying. You can just... Uh, he's lying. He or was up.
1: Sansa's perspective one that gave him more credit than it should have?
0: Uh, I'm not here to be biased. I'm just saying right. that... No, but I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, not he is.
1: And I want to this stress is a little too, shit
0: trying to not look bad in front of his dad.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I'll stress as well that I think that, you know, we have seen Joffrey, Joffrey's crazy bravado about what he thinks, you know, he's capable of and what he thinks he can do. And I think that this he's playing into his own bullshit a little bit here, uh, a little bit, a lot of it. He's saying there's no way they could have beaten me if it was fair. Therefore, they must have ganged up on me, etc. cetera. But I want to go in that this is a a Ned Stark chapter, and it is his perspective. And he kind of starts off the conversation as he enters this room. What's going on here? Why? How dare this happen this way? Why wasn't Arya brought straight to me? And we see right away that the response comes not from Robert the King, but from Cersei. And she says, how dare you speak to your king in that manner? And from this, I actually want to point back to his walking, not running. Ned has been this man of deeply you know, deep sensed honor towards positions, towards roles. And I think while Cersei is this sort of villainous character or is becoming one as we're learning more and more about her, her comment's not wrong. Oh,
0: uh, Ned seems
1: to wield honor and the role of honor when it feels right to him.
0: Okay. Uh, and so I well, just thought it was interesting to start thinking from that perspective a little bit. You're coming at this from a, a blank slate, understandably, mm-hmm. but I want I want to bring some things up here because I think you're – uh, maybe viewing this as more normal than it might be because we have nothing to compare it against. This is, like you said, it's a tribunal. It's a trial, and it's over a fight between children. Arya is under 10. Joffrey is like 13 or 14. And they had a fight, and he's fine, and he has he's going to have some scars as they talk about later. This is, even if this is normal in this world to deal with problems like this, if fights between children in this way, It still makes sense to me that parents would feel aggrieved by that, would feel put upon by that. And so there's a place where he needs to retain his dignity and his honor and, you know, maybe operating more uh, evenly would be useful for him here. But at the same time, this is imposing on his role as a parent and on his child in a way that I'm sure feels unjust. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying,
1: but I will say that there's almost this, I don't know, it's, it's, Ned seems to be filled with self-righteousness that he doesn't apply well. And if we even go back to the first brand one early, early on, as we first met Ned, we have this wonderful, in in the best of ways, self-righteousness. Ned is this incredible character offering both fatherly insights as well as justice and leader insights as well. But Ned's aware of, like right now in this moment, Ned has been aware of potential deceit from Lannisters, what that meant towards John Arryn, you know, Cersei, I'm sorry, uh, Catelyn's sister's letter and things right. like this. The fact is, is that he's bringing his family into a very, very uh, fraught and delicate situation, if not dangerous situation. And I can't help but think that he hasn't done the best of job preparing his Children for like to the sensitivities they need to be prepared for. Wow, yeah. this is a spat between children. It is also the crown prince being attacked right. by the hand of the king's daughters, Wolf. Right. Uh, and and I think that there's for all the evil around the Lannisters that seems to be kind of cropping up. For all the douchiness of Joffrey, I kind of get where some of this is coming from.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to separate out maybe the moral aspect. Mm. Of his reaction from the productivity of it. And he has some of the thoughts about this too. He, As soon as he gets there, he, he's very upset that there's a whole crowd here because he thinks he and Robert probably could have dealt with this very easily yeah. if it's just the two of them. And that makes me think about his skill sets and, and what it is he's doing. So this whole scene really does feel like he's approaching this conversation as the same as the one-on-one conversation he'd be having. And that's mm. the area he thrives in. But everything takes on a very different lens when it's done in front of the full court and Cersei's here throwing wrenches into the spokes and, and, and things of that nature. And you have to think about that in terms of a political play. Was Arya brought in front of the king and everybody summoned except for Ned so as to put him in this position? Interesting, right? Where he wouldn't be able to use his personal relationship with Rob. Because he does not seem to react well to this, I agree. And so Cersei, from our perspective, because we're so firmly on Ned's side and in Ned's head, looks bad. But she's probably having a reaction that a lot of people in the crowd are having. You don't get to speak to the king that way. You definitely don't get to speak to the king that way when your daughter just hit the prince across the head with a stick. If I I did that, I'd get executed. So I I do think that's an interesting point you're making.
1: I will say that uh, as the scene kind of continues, the stories are shared. King Robert basically says, everybody, wait your turn. Arya, tell us your side. Joffrey, tell us yours. I did want to point out that I really enjoyed uh, a moment with Lord Renly, uh, the king's brother, uh, where basically he kind of sees through the drama of the situation to what was kind of my thinking as well. For all of Joffrey's bravado, even through his, his sort of lies about the situation he should be a little embarrassed about it just having his look butt kicked you're right yeah. by this tiny tiny little girl and lord Ren- renly indeed starts to laugh and just kind of can't control it uh and is even asked to leave
0: <laughs> by the kid yeah. like why don't you step outside <laughs> Yeah, he, he specifically laughs to her, throwing the sword in the river, which I like. And, and then his line as he's leaving, perchance later you'll tell me how a nine-year-old girl the size of a wet rat managed to disarm you with a broom handle and throw your sword in the river. And that's just the little the little jab to the ribs there. And I think is also a helpful indication of of what people watching. Are willing to assume happen you know cersei and uh to a less sophisticated degree joffrey are trying to control the narrative here mm-hmm. but my guess is most people like renly are seeing through that to what actually happened which was a spat between children in which joffrey the older male better armed one lost which is a rough look for him uh but Yeah, you know, the the stories aspect of it really comes into things. Robert kicks this off by saying it's a great crime to lie to a king, which is interesting. You see him playing the role of the trial, and it's so inappropriate in this context. But at the same time, this is exactly what we were just talking about, where Ned does not settle into that role based on the context Mm. he's forced into. And so for as much as we can criticize Robert for leaning into it, Cersei for seemingly have set up this environment. Ned does not adjust at all. He does not reorient himself to the realities of what's going on. Fair. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll actually add that this may be not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not sure it's intentional by Ned, but there is a point to showing the absurdity of the situation by refusing to engage in the way that it's set up and i think ned does that at least i get that message from the way he's approaching it but there are tangible consequences to that in that this exchange he does not win this exchange this this rap volley with cersei here
1: yeah and i'll add too that i it's funny because the king king roberts uh, his line that you know we don't lie to kings or that it's a you know it's, it's an offense to it's a criminal offense to do so i found that to be a little more endearing in tone than i think maybe you might have read it uh you know that he was trying to to coax her into the idea that like no you can you should feel comfortable to tell the truth not that you feel should feel threatened to not tell the truth i could see that going either way but i will also add to what you were just saying you know we're seeing this balance between relationship and formality and in this situation the formality of the situation is starting to trump the relationships uh, and I think that just sort of really like reinforces a little bit of what you're saying.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I get what you're saying about Robert's line here, and I think that's probably right. But he can also intend it one way and have it mm-hmm. heard another way by the child. You know, this True. reminds me of of you know a police officer telling a kid like, "Hey, you know, you got to tell me the truth here," trying right. nice and trying to encourage them. And at the same time, the kid who thinks they might be in trouble. We see you know the scene starts conversation starts with Arya apologizing profusely to her dad. Right that's a terrifying thing to hear what that's is going fair. through yeah. her head am i going to get thrown in jail am i going to be executed obviously that's not going to happen to this eight-year-old but i can see her being very scared about that
1: very quickly after this moment we actually see aria's uh temper kind of get the best of her a little bit or her 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 emotions at least sansa is called in to be a third witness we have joffrey we have aria and now sansa being called in sansa desperately tries to find a middle ground here to say oh i don't remember i I don't want to be part of this she's definitely torn between sides to which aria launches at her tackles her and starts pummeling her
0: again Uh, speaking of the emotion versus the the helpful response this is aria is too young to realize how hard this makes ned's life in this moment to have her do this exactly i also found it interesting for the first time On reading this time, I noticed a line earlier on in the chapter when Ned tells Veyon Pool to go get Sansa, we might need her. He mentions that the night of the incident, he heard the story from Sansa. So it actually kind of changed the lens of this scene for me a little bit because it goes from Ned supporting his children and assuming Arya's telling the truth as opposed to Joffrey to He actually knows. He heard three days ago from a third party and that story lines up with Arya's and not Joffrey's. And not only does he know what the truth is here, he knows that Sansa is panicking and trying to avoid being right. sucked into it.
1: Very quickly, though, after all of this, I mean, this this there, there's a lot of pomp to this scene, uh, like the scene of of the trial, this sort of interrogation that's going on. Um, and very quickly after King King Baratheon, King like basically Robert turns around and says, "Ned, take your daughter, deal with her, make yeah. sure that you take care of this, and, and I will do the same with Joffrey." Yep. But those lines are quickly followed upon by Cersei saying what about the dire wolf what about that wolf you can't bring a wolf to king's landing they bite children and Mm -hmm. i think that uh that what's it called uh she goes on to say basically like like i will i'll give a hundred golden dragons to whoever can bring me the pelt of this
0: right of this wolf uh and then from here, oh i'm sorry uh, last episode in our last recording, how much brand's life cost. So this wolf is significantly more expensive. I don't remember the exact number, but it was less than a hundred and it was paid in silver. So uh, if you think that Cersei was the
1: one who paid to have that. It doesn't have cum, to be. I am I'm comparing market markets prices. are different. Well, they might be different markets. This is a, this is a monarch's market here. <laughs> okay. Can't be seen to not pay enough
0: cersei gets charged more than whoever sent the. that's
1: like uh, oh like the queen wants me to do it for 10 golden you know dragons i don't think so that's clearly not yeah. worth it what a bitch. uh but then she goes on to say you know what why don't we go ahead and just take the skin of the wolf that we have available yes uh and points we come to realize at lady lady <laughs> the tiny beautiful small dire wolf the delicate one
0: sansa's dire wolf Yeah, George R. R. Martin really twists the knife on this one. This comes in a little bit after the conversation finishes. But this is the first description we've really had of Lady. And it's all about how wonderfully perfect and small and nice and obedient she is. And it's like, come on, man. Like, really in the paragraph before you kill her? It's rude.
1: I think of Sansa, and by extension, her dog Lady, her direwolf Lady, as kind of like Greek yogurt. Nobody really wants it. You wish there was more.
0: But it's got velvety sheen. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> I have no other response to that comparison.
1: Um, and I think I think at the end of this moment, uh, this this trial, if you will, I uh, you know that I think Ned has to come face to face with some realities that he is in a position of of weakness, or or rather, he needs to start understanding that this is not about the relationship between him and his friend Robert Baratheon. This is about the formalities of the king of of the castle, basically, of the kingdom. He now has to play by a different set of rules that he doesn't seem comfortable with and doesn't seem to know that well. And he's starting to lose a little bit. He's now had a situation of loss. He does decide to, uh, be the own uh, like like be the the killer of Sansa's dog. Uh, the executioner swing the sword you, yeah yeah i uh, you know to be nicer he also wants the the direwolf's uh, corpse to be brought back up to the north he doesn't want cersei to have the pelt um, and then i'll add just to kind of we can come back to the situation in a moment but i'll add that the actual chapter itself comes to an end very quickly uh, here with sandor clegane kind of arriving with a big like basically something in a burlap sack which ned immediately thinks is the dire is Arya's direwolf Uh, But it turns out that it is the it's the butcher's son. It's the butcher's son uh, who has not only been captured, but has been run down by Sandor Clegane
0: on horse and basically murdered brutally. Cut almost in half from shoulder to waist. And I'll say, you know, basically, I think that this chapter
1: was a lot of watching Ned Stark lose. Ned Stark now has to understand that he is part of a larger system that he needs to find a way to play in. and. You know he has sort of been a little uh you know his own children to a certain sense have caused him a little bit of shame aria with the actions that happened sansa without not being able to stand up he had to lose to cersei basically yeah. ki- you know lady having to be sacrificed and now seeing this sort of what from one perspective is justice on a certain side the butcher's boy was part of this quote-unquote attack on the print on the crown prince you know, these are all nothing was illegal in what was done here by Sandor Clegane or what was being asked for. Uh, but it's really uncomfortable. These are people that seem to have a lack of morals and a lack of sort of like uh uh honorable, you know, direction. And he has to well, understand that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's great. And that's, that's really good insights into this, because it lines up with what I was thinking about with it, which is, like you said, we have this situation where Ned is finally learning that this is not him on a one to one individual relationship with the king with Robert, that there are other factors at play and roles being played and, and political context that he needs to operate through. And this is something that's catelyn rather was emphasizing early on in the book in terms of why he can't turn down this job and the ways that robert will perceive it not as a friend but as a king Mm -hmm. and robert here has a lot of instincts that seem good kids fight you deal with your kid i'll deal with mine the wolf isn't here let's drop it and be done with it this is all a mess And we really see Cersei manipulate him in response to that by really ratcheting up the emotion every time she describes the incidents about how violent they were to Joffrey, to your son, this is Mm -hmm. an attack on the crown, and trying to convert it into that political thing. And it works, and that's what ends in Lady's death. And you can really see in the first half of that, the relationship between Robert, Robert and Ned where that may have come from because Robert has these similar sort of instincts to Ned of not operating on the political plane. At the same time, we also see Robert and to some degree Ned's lack of political sophistication because Robert, as the king, could have full control over the situation if he wanted to. Mm. If he turned around to Cersei and said, no, this is not how we're dealing with this, what happens is it delegitimizes her. I mean, she would cause problems in their relationship, in their marriage, and all of that, but she gets made to look bad in front of the court. And by putting herself out there like this, she's taking a risk that he will respond in that avenue and, and lessen her influence. Right. But instead, she knows Robert well enough to know that as soon as she inserts those political considerations, make it about his masculinity, make it about his power and his authority, this is an attack on the crown as an institution and therefore an attack on you through your son. He's going to say, I don't like dealing with that. I'm going to take the path of least resistance out and go there. And Ned seems to have no understanding of that side of his friend and no understanding of how to appeal to that Hmm. side of his friend. I like that. And there's one last aspect to this that I really like because we also see the flip side. Like you were just saying the immorality of it with Sandra Clegane, which we'll get to in a moment, but also with Cersei herself. Ned operates on an emotional level, on an interpersonal level, and Cersei operates purely on a political level to the point where when he says, the the wolf is of the north, I'm going to execute her myself, it shouldn't be Sir Illyn. She says, is this a trick? I don't understand what you're doing. There's no play here because there isn't a play. This is Ned living by the code that he thinks is important and acting in the way that he thinks is honorable as as we keep saying about him and so they're just they're operating from such different worlds and such different circles and cersei's baseline her, her base of understanding the context she's coming from makes her more productive in this sense but she does seem to lose something else in, in her humanity as she goes through that i'll add too that i think that
1: and it's interesting like thinking about it as you're as you're saying it but Cersei's approach to this entire situation, just following exactly what you were saying, right? Like pointing out Robert Baratheon's, you know, disrespect towards his own position, his family, his masculinity. But it sets in a certain sense, and I don't know how intentional it is from her part, but there's something wonderfully sly about what she's doing. Because in a sense, uh, if Robert says, shut up, Cersei, you know, this isn't your business. I do it my way. It gives Cersei, and by extension, the Lannisters, and by extension, anybody who might not like Robert Baratheon to say, he's not fit to be king. He's not holding up the rights of his position. He's not honoring his position. The fact is, is that there's no such thing as like a light insult to the king. It is an insult. These are zero-sum issues. And I think Cersei does a wonderful job of kind of maintaining that line. Like, if you please robert baratheon my husband give me an excuse for my family to potentially say you also just like the king before you
0: are not qualified to hold this position i right. uh, and the which i just think is family. really sly yeah the role of her family is huge here too. It wouldn't just be her that he would be undermining; it would be the right. Lannisters as a whole, which may have significant consequences for him in other ways. And I'm sure that's somewhat on his mind too. That that she carries a lot of force behind her. All I'm saying though is that you know we see a lot in in fantasy contexts of people trying to assert themselves in a context where they are. Uh, politically the inferior, just as a matter of of hierarchical structures. And Cersei unequivocally is to Robert. And when they get undercut from above like that, it often leads to a delegitimization of them, which can cause a backlash that Robert might be thinking of. But instead of asserting himself, saying, I am the crown, I am the law, this fight between children does not need to be a bigger deal. I feel like that probably would have been more effective for him and hurt Cersei As opposed to the opposite that that is not the type of slight that you can rally people behind if you're Mm. the lannisters whereas on the other end the corporal punishment of children certainly is a slight that you can rally people against the king for interesting while there's certainly complex political considerations i'm not convinced that robert has taken the right move here rather than the easy way out in the face of somebody who knows how to manipulate him in cersei
1: I like that. I like that a lot.
0: But that rounds out our chapter, I think, what is that, Ned 3? Ned 3. Yeah, I just want to talk briefly about Sander Clegane too, because you and I Mm -hmm. have had a lot of conversations around this, and you've had some very uh, prescient understandings of context before about uh, touching the royal... Person uh, and and the consequences that stem from that, and we see. I mean, this whole chapter is about consequences of physical contact with Joffrey, mm-hmm. and Arya, of course, gets bought, brought before a trial for it, but is ultimately let off the hook. And this is something we talked about with Rob and Joffrey training together, and John not participating in that. We do see here that Arya, as a member of another important uh, noble household does not ultimately get punished for the damage that she causes to the prince. Uh, The wolf does, and that is Indirectly, a punishment to the Stark children, but I think that that was more directly a punishment of this animal. An animal does not get to hurt the crown prince. But then we also see on the flip side what happens when you're not of noble blood and you get involved mm-hmm. in a situation like this. And, you know, Micah didn't even touch Joffrey at all. He said, No, I don't want to participate in this. I know how this ends for somebody like me. And then ultimately, it did. He gets run down by the knight or, or you know, Sandra Clegane on horseback and it gets killed. He's a 13-year-old boy, and he has no way to save himself here. And what, a, what an interesting contrast with what we just saw Arya go through, but ultimately not face any of the same results.
1: I think something interesting about this, too, is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of political gain in killing Micah. You know, maybe the idea that he would spread the quote-unquote rumor of what actually happened, you know, how shitty Joffrey is or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but the fact is, is, is it's not like he, A, he didn't touch the boy, you know what I mean? And B, nobody's going to know, nobody's going to know that that's right. how he died. It's not being publicized. It's in, it's in the middle, you know, uh, like, like between King's Landing and Winterfell. It's not, it's not anywhere of great import as far yeah. as I can tell. So it really seems to be within the letter of the law, but a very weirdly bullish type of move from this Lannister, you know, dog, if you will.
0: Yeah, from Sander himself, but also the only context we've met Sander in so far in this series is as Joffrey's right-hand man and personal Fair. protector. Yeah. So I, ha- I have to wonder, did Joffrey say, you know, fuck that kid, somebody go kill him. And Sander said, all right, whatever, this is my job. You know, like that- Or does reality. Joffrey even,
1: yeah, does Joffrey even need to? You know what I mean? Like, like Sander already saying, I know that this is the expectation. This is yeah. what what the company line is.
0: Yeah, there's another theme that we've talked about before too. Going back to the prologue that I wanted to mention in this context, which you and I discussed, uh, there was a part in the prologue where the point of view character Will sees Garret r- maybe sort of reach a little towards his sword. He, he thinks maybe Garret would mm-hmm. fight Sir Waymar Royce, and if he did, he would definitely kick the crap out of Waymar Royce. And I brought up the possibility based on what we saw from the end of that chapter that Waymar Royce, as the better armored, the better armed, the better trained member of the nobility might not have struggled with the grizzled old vet the way that we always see it. Hmm. And this is an interesting place where I think George R. R. Martin is playing with some of the classic things in fantasy, where so often we have the good moral underdog peasant, hobbit, whatever it might be, taking on that upper class and defeating them through the the pure good of their heart and strength of will and things like that. Uh, The the sheep herder who ends up displacing the nobility and and ruling because they're better. And this is a more poignant critique of the real world, I think. We can have a lot of takeaways from those other types of stories about morals and who we are as people. But in terms of society, the poor, the fat kid who's raised by the butcher who's never held a sword before is going to lose to the knight on horseback. You're not going to have a Robin Hood, uh, you know, uprising, successful one-on-one battle where the the little plucky guy ends up winning. It's he's going to die because the people in power decided that he should. And that's a very different type of story.
1: I also like to, you get me thinking about your comments about the prologue, you know, that there's a nice and part in the phrasing, but a nice stark differentiation between the characters that we're meeting who have experience uh, and the characters that we're meeting who are just sort of there by title. And something that's interesting is that, when we compare the Lannisters to the Starks at this point, in a very strange way, the Lannisters seem to have a lot more experience on on a lot of political areas. First of all, being politically tapped in, and second, getting their hands dirty, you know, and and playing these political games. Whereas Ned seems to be coming from this sense of again honorability. You know, I don't want my kids playing with sharp swords when they're training yet. I don't want them to be getting their hands dirty. And I wonder if, if in, in the strangest of ways that, you know, the Starks will become sort of the Waymar Royces, uh, you know, this sort of well, well-groomed looking the right part, but without that sort of dirtier, you know, hands-on grueling experience
0: to They're actually protect themselves. actually happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm curious, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it until what you were saying here, but I'm starting to get this sense that Ned is uh, outgunned. Uh, Ned and his family are a bit outgunned by what they're about to face simply based on,
0: oh, they're playing the a different game. Always- exactly. He's playing the wrong game. Yeah. I like that a lot. So that brings us to brand three and, brand and this 3. chapter, I have been so excited for this to get into this with you. I am willing to bet this felt like a nothing chapter to you, but there is so much to work with and I'm going to be putting you on the spot here. So I hope you haven't thought. About I'm
1: it ready. Okay. Uh, wait, why don't you take us through so it? Brand and then we can.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll take us through it. Brand three is, is a dream sequence. And so we don't have plot happening here. But what we have is a mix of a variety of things. And I want to get your sense on what you think is going on, but also on on maybe the aspects of this that you were thinking aren't present. There is a lot of metaphor. There is a lot of of interpretation to be had about bran as a character through the dreams that he's having but there's also a very clear mystical sense that i'll get to in a moment about there being truth and true seeing here we get some things that he definitely would not know if it weren't for this uh this dream sequence and so we can get the idea that there is some real magic going on here and that he is seeing something true and so when we get into places where we're talking about things that we don't know I want to get your thoughts on what those mean and what those might indicate for the future. Uh, And I I think both halves of that are are crucial to this, that we're both learning about Bran as a character and as a person, but we're also learning something about the world around us. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting. You know, I have the... Experience of having of reading this, having read through the series a couple of times, and read and listened to plenty of people's theories on what certain things mean. If we haven't gotten conclusions to them yet, and I'm curious where you're at as uh, as your first time entering this. Yeah, absolutely. So this dream sequence starts with Bran falling. He feels as though he's been falling for years, and uh, there is a voice throughout all of this, whispering to him in the darkness. It says, "Fly." But Bran did not know how to fly, so all he could do was fall. And he continues to think about this. He, he sees Maester Lewin throwing the clay boy off the, mm-hmm. off the roof again, and he thinks, but I never fall, he said, falling. Hmm. Bran then thinks, this is a dream, and in dreams you wake up before you hit. You always do, so I'm going to wake up right before you hit. And the voice speaks up again and says, and if you don't, and that makes Bran want to cry. The voice keeps telling him, fly, fly, fly. How do you know you can't? Have you ever tried to fly? And Bran looks around and finally identifies the source of this voice and it is a crow flying alongside him as he falls. Bran says, help me. And the crow says, I'm trying. And then it asks for corn and Bran gives it some. He finds it in his pockets and he drops some but the crow settles down and starts eating it. Bran looks at him and says, are you really a crow? And the crow says, are you really falling? And Bran says, no, it's just a dream, and I'll wake up when I hit the ground. The crow says, you'll die when you hit the ground. How hard can it be to fly? I'm doing it. Bran says, you have wings. And the crow says, maybe you do too. There are different kinds of wings. At this point, Bran notices how skinny he is, and he can't figure out why or if he was always that skinny. And a face swims up at him out of the gray mist, shining with light, golden. The things I do for love, the face said. And Bran screamed. The crow tells him to forget that. You don't need it now. Put it aside. Put it away. At this point, the crow starts pecking at Bran, and Bran starts to fall faster. He says, what are you doing? And the crow says, every flight begins with a fall, which I love as a potential hitchhiker's guide reference. Uh, That's immediately (laughs) where my brain went. (laughs) But Bran looks down and sees the ground rushing up at him. And as the ground is rushing up, he realizes he can see everything in the realm. He sees Maester Lewin on a balcony, looking through a telescope and making notes in a book. He sees Rob practicing in the yard with real steel. He sees Hodor, the simple giant from the stables, carrying an anvil to Micken's Forge. He sees the great white weirwood in the godswood brooded over its reflection in the black pool. And when it felt Bran watching, it lifted its eyes from the still waters and stared back at him knowingly. He sees Catelyn and Roderick on a ship across the Bight. Catelyn has a blood-stained knife on the table in front of her, while Roderick is seasick over the edge. He sees a storm was gathering ahead of them, a vast dark roaring lashed by lightning, but somehow they could not see it. Next, he sees Ned pleading with Robert, his face etched with grief, Sansa crying herself to sleep at night and Arya watching in silence and holding her secrets hard in her heart. There were shadows all around them. One was dark as ash with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. And then he sees across the narrow sea to the free cities and the green Dothraki sea and beyond, to Vase Dothrak under its mountain, to the fabled lands of the Jade Sea, to shy by the shadow where dragons stirred beneath the sunrise. And then he looks north and sees the wall shining like blue crystal and John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. North and north and north he looked to the curtain of light at the end of the world. And then beyond that curtain, he looked deep into the heart of winter, and then he cried out, afraid, and the heat of his tears burned on his cheeks. Now you know why you must live, because winter is coming. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut off the recap there, and let's chat about what's come so far. What were your thoughts here, just generally? What was going on in this chapter for you? So I followed. I think I followed a lot of just how
1: you even kind of led us into this. It started as and is a dream sequence. You know, we're hearing Brand kind of go through almost fever dream sort of style. We know that he's been bedridden. We know that he's been injured. He's in a coma. So I assume that that's exactly what it was. He's just having dreams. Um, it took me until he saw his mother uh, sitting sitting in a cabin with the bloodstained knife that I realized what he's starting to see is not just fever dream. He
0: clearly okay. is now getting vision yeah. uh, to to more than just that. Um, yeah, that makes sense because the first half of those sequences of things he sees in the realm are are maybe things that he could have conjured up on his own., yeah. Maester Lewin doing science, Rob practicing, but you know, the first hint really shows up now he's using an actual sword, which only happened after Bran fell. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hodor carrying an anvil to Micken's Forge. Which, again, is something that could have been happening and could have been an image he saw in his mind. But maybe there is more urgency in Winterfell right now in terms of preparation for fighting, that the blacksmith is making advances. It was
1: an interesting way. Like, what was interesting is the moment that I realized that his visions were more on the real side than the imaginary it now made me have to go back and rethink what I had just read exactly to yeah. your point. So it's not just that he's seeing some very familiar family members in familiar situations, uh, maybe a little adjusted, but it's it's he's now getting a real view and perspective. And then at the same time, moving forward, North, 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 what's beyond the wall? What's beyond that veil? I, I'm, you know, because of that, what he's seeing is real. It makes me think that this is just as real as well. That okay, he is yeah. getting this vision and insight into
0: the beyond, if you will,
1: so uh, and the starts that it brings.
0: Let's start there at the back, and then we can work our way backwards mm-hmm. towards the beginning. What is he seeing in the north? What is what is in the heart of winter that scares him?
1: Well, you know, I'll be in, uh, honest. I, I'm. I think that I could see this these lines being written as a way to be vague to us, the reader. Mm-hmm. Brand saw something very explicit, but we don't get to know that yet. At the same time, I'm not sure just how deep or how far this sort of magical vision that he has goes. Maybe right. what he quote unquote, saw was a an awful feeling of awfulness.
0: And yeah, that's where I lean to. yeah, I, I agree. yeah, that this is i I don't expect him to wake up with a concrete idea of any of these visions, but in particular, this one, I saw something specific and it scared me. And now I need to warn everybody about it. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's how I felt about that. And, and and even similar, go, go ahead. Did you get anything concrete from it though? Was that reminding you of anything that we've talked about before or anything we've thought about? Well, only like the
1: prologue and the fact you know, the others and, um, again, who remembers his name, Garrett Gerard Gar- the yeah. guy with no ears. Um, yes. But the fact that he he was trying to come in and was babbling at the time that he was found, but trying to spread word of this greater danger that's out there. Uh, it's interesting, you know, even between these two chapters to see there's almost like a... It's almost as if the political drama happening towards King's Landing and with the king is almost a red herring for the much greater, larger existential problem that seems to be like growing and festering in the north. Yeah. Uh, and o- the, o- the only people who seem to know about it are, you know, crazy, you know, the, the crazies, the earless and yes. a young child <laughs> who's about to come out of a coma. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so who who's going to believe that anyway?
0: yeah i i want to bring up something that i've hinted at to you in the past but make it more explicit here because we get a flip of the stark words in winter is coming you need to live because winter is coming these are the stark words the stark words it was singled out to us uh are, are a little different than the usual boasts this one is more mm-hmm. of a warning and i think it can be i don't think it's meant to be one way or the other but it can mean both things winter of course is the season that they need to prepare for and be ready for But it could also mean the others, which gives an interesting idea to a lot of different aspects of this. We have him looking at Winter's heart. We also know that their castle is called Winterfell, which is an interesting thought. Uh, So just wanted to draw that to your attention there. Winter is coming, which is why we need you, which is why we need to be prepared, could very easily be referring to this bigger issue beyond the wall that people are not paying attention to.
1: It's funny because going along that sort of like sigil and line, the idea of winter is coming being the family—I don't know what you even call it—epitaphs, words, words. But uh, but I think that when I was first hearing those words, I heard it as you know an aggressive, offensive uh, threat. Beware Uh, of our family winter is coming, but I like that. there's a, n- a new perspective here that I think starts to really show
0: in this chapter
1: and, and with what you're
0: saying. And then we also had in, uh, you know, that Catlin chapter after the feast winter was coming,
1: mm-hmm. no,
0: that but I a think that's joke.
1: It, it could,
0: uh, but I think it could also <laughs> be a very like honorable
1: <laughs> defensive term. Winter is coming and we're here to protect the South from the winter yeah.
0: that is coming. Yeah. I like that a lot. So, so like I said, working our way backwards here, the last thing we get before that is we get an image of John and in light of the truth of the other things, this is a concerning image. John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. Is John dead? No, no. I think that again, (laughs) that's a,
1: maybe, yeah, probably not, but I. No, I think that for, again, like this entire dream sequence and with it, this sort of mythical vision, this sort of the magical vision that Bran gets to have. I think this is just the language of like his own understanding of his dream language. You know, yeah, I I can bet in a very realistic and and true way, John's cold. Uh, You know, like it's cold for him. Uh, But with that said, I think that there's this, this balance that Bran has to face between the vision, the, the, quote unquote real vision parts of the vision John is cold to the more metaphorical and allegorical parts here of John is growing as well he's becoming more hard skinned to his situation. We saw in the Tyrion chapter John's old uh, his own uh, denial in the moment of who his who his teammates and comrades are about to be right. and I think he's getting hard into that.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. It also conjures up an image to me of the other series I'm reading at the moment, The Wheel of Time, because there is a character in that, a main character there, who is constantly described as as hard and hardening himself emotionally, trying not to expose himself to the difficulties there as a form of leadership and, and in an attempt to really ready himself. You know, he's the protagonist of this series and ready himself for the big battle against the evil that he has to fight someday and it's one of the themes that they explore there is about the risks and the problems of that there are uh there's one character in particular but a couple of others who take it upon themselves as as my most important role in this fight is to remind the messiah figure how to laugh and how to cry that there's an aspect of hardening oneself in advance for this fight for john maybe it's for uh, becoming part of the night's watch and and experiencing that reality that he needs to retain some aspect of that softness to. So maybe Bran is seeing the beginning of that, that calcification of John.
1: And I think it goes well with something that we just brought up a moment ago from the last chapter, which is the Starks need to man up with a little bit of experience, perhaps. You know, maybe yeah. it's, t- you know, and I think that this might be coming into part of that. You know, what who, who of this Stark family is going to step up and harden themselves to the hard situations they're about to see and face yeah. i think Arya stands out john stands out bran is starting to sansa is not you know right. son, e, 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 the, a little bit of that pampered sort of look and and so it's just interesting to be thinking about it from that perspective
0: yeah absolutely so the the vision before that we have ned pleading with robert his face etched with grief and then we see Sansa crying herself to sleep at night and Arya watching in silence and holding her secrets hard in her heart. So what did you, what did you have there?
1: Again, more just direct vision than deep insight. I think that, you know, back to the sort of like the poetics of dream visions, right? Like, I don't know of any secrets that Arya has aside from, you know, sword fighting with the butcher's boy, but right. maybe she has more, or maybe this is the way that her, the vision is being portrayed to Bran is giving a deeper understanding of her as a character to him, to her own brother. You yeah. know, she has always been this type of person and she will be somebody who is always playing it tight to the chest uh, about what needs to happen.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So we have Sansa really feeling emotional and experiencing with those emotions and notably Ned also having mm. that same mm. similar reaction Well, Arya is is playing herself more strong, more rigid, in both the positive and negative ways. So those are associated with some other images as well. There were shadows all around them, which feels very threatening. I mean, I think this is, is pretty explicit in terms of the threat that it has towards them. The first one, one was dark as ash with the terrible face of a face of a hound. I don't think
1: that's very subtle at all.
0: No, not really. That is probably Sandra Clegane. Right. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. I don't think that's terribly subtle either. Who you got? Jamie. Yeah, okay. Uh, and over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone, and when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Yeah, I don't know this one. It
1: felt more, uh, whereas the first two seem to be direct characters. This third one, yeah. I wonder if it's speaking to an essence of something, or, you know, like some... Who knows if the Lannisters sacrifice, you know, young children and pray to some dark god. That's Interesting,
0: yeah. Okay, and maybe it's somebody we'll meet in the future or yeah. a, a, a context that we'll see in the future. Something to Fair. keep in mind. Yeah. So before this Ned vision, we have Catelyn and Roderick on a ship across the Bight. To give you some context, since I know you hate maps, the Bight is a bay between the North and the Vale. So from, from North to South on the East Coast of Westeros, we have... Uh, the east side of the north. We have the Vale, and then below that is the Crownlands, which is where King's Landing is. So this is, like you said, where you're really supposed to realize. Okay, Bran is seeing things that are happening because we know Catelyn and Roderick went to pick up a ship in White Harbor, which is a city mm-hmm. on the Bite, and they are taking that ship through there. Catelyn has a bloodstained knife in front of her. I don't think that one's particularly subtle either. And Roderick is seasick. And then we see a storm was gathering ahead of them, a vast dark roaring lashed by lightning, but somehow they could not see it. Is this a real storm? Are they going to make it to King's Landing? Is this a metaphor?
1: Well, again, I think, uh, you know, I'll I'll stand by what I've been saying. I'm curious. We're only just now getting the first taste of what Bran seems to be able to see. And I don't think, and obviously Bran doesn't even know that what he's seeing is real or not. We seem to know more than he does. We obviously know more. He's been in a coma. Um, It'll be interesting to get into the next Catlin chapter, and is there a physical storm? Is perhaps a letter going to arrive that brings with it a storm of emotions of some? You know what I mean. But yeah. until that sort of resolution further along, I'm not. I'm not going to look at anything that Brand seeing as a 100 literal. So okay. is this figure in? stone armor a literal figure in stone armor is this storm on the horizon that they can't see a real storm or a metaphorical one i don't know but i believe in his sense about it i believe there's danger i believe there's threat uh much more than i'm worried about his forecasts in particular
0: okay yeah that's uh that's an interesting take i like that a lot so we'll have to keep an eye out for it and then last we have the various winterfell scenes which we've already talked about several of them but i want to focus on the close of this the weirwood is watching him. It feels him watching and it lifts up and it looks at him as he's falling. It is in this mystical realm with him and makes that contact. And we've seen a lot of this from the werewood so far. Every time they've been mentioned, we have them watching. They're incredibly anthropomorphic from the leaves like hands to the white of bone and the red of blood in their color scheme to the literal face carved into them. And right. this is a representation of the old gods, the gods of the first men. And so it makes me wonder, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. We have not gotten too far into the religious as real. We have been talking about it in terms of Catlin as a religious person, Ned as a religious person in a different manner are the old gods there are the old gods participating in this dream with bran is there something that he's supposed to get from the Werewood here and the Werewood maybe being a, a metaphor or an analogy for something in the real world what was your takeaways
1: my takeaways are dense and and i'm going to get into them but but i i, I want to say that a lot of this comes from outside of this world or this particular book's experience Great. um you know, something that I always enjoy when it comes to conversations around faith and the spirituality of faith and, and sort of what is the things that are there is this idea, uh, basically this idea that the icon itself exists in two realms. You have the icon being there for people who need that icon. So in this case, it's the forest, it's the woods. Yeah, uh, these are holy woods. They've gone through, you know, they've been sanctified through the actions of, you know, whatever the priests are of this religion or whatever it might be. And I, as a casual participant in this faith, call it a Ned Stark, if you will, uh, or even a Catelyn, who is much more participatory in this faith, uh, or in a, well, faith. in a different faith, yeah, yeah, but participatory as somebody of faith kind of coming and saying there's something to uh honor and revere about these icons. But I think at the same time that the icons can also be the the god itself and it depends who is looking at it and who's seeing it. So I think that what we're starting to see is brand getting an access to a deeper connection of the strength and of the spirit of in this case these woods. I'm curious to see if it goes somewhere else as well. But I suppose what I mean by it is I don't think that, I don't think that brand's newfound ability is what is waking up this for this, this spirit of the forest. I think it's something that was there and brands now getting the ability to sense it at a deeper level than just the face forward icon that's there, but it's the language that would be the same. So the terminology of you know oh it's watching the forest is watching the spirits are watching so for some they the the leaves look like hands and right. oh it must be it's anthropomorphized but to brand now with this sort of deeper ability this ability to sort of peer deeper you know he's saying oh it's not just that the leaves look like hands but in fact they're actually collecting dreams or whatever it might be they're actually collecting right. things this is my you know yeah. no, my like fudging fudging it but that's that's how i i think about it so you know i think that's sometimes sometimes, you know, people have like a holy object and that object has two functions. One is the function of, let's say it's a bowl. It's a holy bowl. And sometimes people need to collect water and thank God this bowl is there. And then other times it's a holy bowl. And sometimes people need to talk to God and that's how they talk to their God is talking to this bowl, but it's functional both ways. And it has a really special place both ways, regardless.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting to hear, you know, that that last point you were making makes a lot of sense with providing them with a face. If you need to speak to your gods, if you need to show mm-hmm. your gods something, if you need them to look at what it is you're doing, what better way than than through the eyes of these living trees, of these embodied gods in the physical realm. Absolutely. I like that a lot. You're really getting to a lot of how the North in particular, and I think we can learn a lot about who their gods are and how they interact with them in this story. The North and the First Men have this natural aspect to it. It's very much so about nature, about the holiness of the godswood as a whole and the with the heart's tree with the face on it. And that may be an interesting insight into how they relate to the world around them, Their you know their interaction with the land and with winter and the seasons and all of these different things that they seem to be so deeply rooted in that. But that brings us, I think, to the last part of this that I wanted to ask you about, which is... Bran has this whole conversation with the crow and there's a lot to be taken from here that I think we should get into about who Bran is and how Bran is seeing himself and what we can go with there but I want to start even more simply the weirwood seems to be living in a real way or at least in this mystical world way what about the crow is the crow an extension of Bran's psyche is the crow a different entity interfering in his dreams is it, uh, you know, only existence in this dream world, in this dreamscape? What were you taking away from that? I mean, we even have Bran specifically say, are you really a crow? Which I think could at least raise the question for us.
1: Yeah, I, I know, again, just very generically speaking, it's not it's not odd or rare to have like a guide along a spiritual journey in faith, in in stories of faith. Uh, It's not the guide is not the God itself, but is some very accessible type of character that you're able to connect with Mm -hmm. right now. You know, honestly, and we haven't we haven't actually mentioned this, but the end of this chapter is Bran wakes up. uh, But honestly, I was expecting the crow to show up and to say, oh, here is this character, a new character of the crow to live between these worlds. He, uh-huh. you know, a connection of the physical world that Brand is in with the spiritual connection that he now has, but not seeing that crow there uh, upon waking up. Honestly, maybe it's just the way that Brand's like. Perhaps this crow is simply the way that Brand Brand's mind is going to find a connection with you know some type of guide or with with this newfound ability or whatever it might be. But honestly, I think this crow might be uh percent mental you know not not that it's made up by brand it could be very much put in there by this spiritual third party or whatever it is okay yeah but uh but as of right now yeah I I see it as very
0: internalized yeah no that makes a lot of sense I want to draw back on something I was talking about in our fourth episode which was when brand fell because mm-hmm. we had—that's our only other mention of crows in this book. It comes mm. from old man's stories. The crows came down and picked out uh, the boy's eyes after he fell. And I talked at length about that and, and the ties to mythology there, and really that story—the way it, it taps into a variety of different religious contexts from before—is as a bringer of knowledge and a bringer of sometimes knowledge that is a downfall knowledge that is is forbidden uh you can think of the crow in terms of the promethean bringing of fire and the bringing of knowledge in that way which is both creative scientific and destructive you think of the nuclear bombs we talked about that or you can think of it in terms of the serpent from the garden of eden and so I just wanted to bring that back up because it'll be interesting to see which of those two paths this crow, if it comes back, takes Brand down, or whether it is a path that combines both of them. That this is is both positive, creative, insightful you know, I, knowledge or destructive knowledge.
1: I like that, and I'll add too that I think, and I'm, I am just I just happen to have this in front of me, but I think another another connection to a crow in literature and, and even beyond is in the story of noah and the flood i uh, where originally noah sends out a a dove to go look for dry land and then i think that dove is followed by if i'm not mistaken a crow or it's a raven but a raven falls into the same sort of category a of some kind yeah um but but I did, one that is I realized that is search like one that is able to cut through and find the truth of the situation if you will they bring back that olive branch they bring back that sort of sign that of land meaning. And I do want to confirm, I'll, I'll look it up. I'm not 100% see if okay. I can find it now. But, uh, I mean, but look, people talking, are so always welcome
0: it. to yell at us on Twitter or send us an email if we're wrong about something. But I like that nonetheless, that this is, it's insight and it is access to safety and to growth and to progress. And this is exactly what we were talking about with the Promethean story. And, you know, that brings us so perfectly to where this, dream sequence lands because bran looks over at the crow at this avatar of forbidden knowledge and the crow has three eyes and the third eye was full of a terrible knowledge and you know that third eye concept comes uh i believe from hinduism and, and this con- this knowledge is so deeply connected to that image of the eye in the middle of the forehead uh, and the true sight that it provides. And so I think that that's an interesting way for this dream sequence to pretty much come to a close uh, in, in the next few pages of cementing that theme of Bran seeing beyond and seeing things that he otherwise would not know. And when Bran looks and sees the three, the three eyes, the terrible knowledge he sees was a frozen wasteland where jagged blue-white spires of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points. He was desperately afraid. And then he hears his father's voice once again say, that is the only time a man can be brave. So just briefly on this part of the vision, if the crow ends up being some third party that is is interfering, uh, or the weirwood or any of these religious symbols are imposing on Bran from the external from outside of him, are these other dreamers who have died on the points real? Mm. Well, I hate to be a oh, skipping record, but I have no idea.
1: I still think yeah. this <laughs> falls into the sort of ambiguity of dream sequence. Uh, I think that let's say that we never hear of these these type these folk again, then it was just a really lovely dream sequence showing a connection to something deeper. Potentially it is solid. Mm, even lighter than foreshadowing but uh, alluding a little bit to what we might discover a little bit later but but i i I really i didn't have much of a feeling about it i thought it was
0: interesting that you know maybe this is an example of these mystical forces attempting to provide the true sight to someone before and there are so many stories out there of the true sight driving people insane Um, Um, and that those are the rocks that he could fall upon But even if that's not the case, then it at least embodies the risks that Bran is facing down here and the danger that comes from the forbidden knowledge that he's being provided. And the dream sequence really does close out this time with genuinely Bran being provided that forbidden knowledge. The crow looks at him and says, Choose, fly or die. And Bran spread his arms and flew. It was better than climbing, it was better than anything. But immediately the crow comes and lands on him and stabs the middle of his forehead between his eyes with its beak. And this is the point where Bran wakes up. The crow transforms into a woman, a serving woman, a woman he recognizes from Winterfell. And he realizes she has now dropped the basin she was holding and sponge bathing him with. And she runs out of the room shouting, he's awake, he's awake, he's awake. And he realizes, oh, I'm in Winterfell. He reaches towards his forehead, finds there's no actual wound there tries to get out of bed and nothing happens and then his wolf jumps on his lap and he doesn't feel anything and that's where rob comes in to find him clearly having run the whole way and brand looks at him and smiles and says the wolf's name is summer and that's the end of our chapter
1: i liked also by the way the wolf's name is summer i thought it goes really nicely with what something you had brought up before about winter is coming right like like is this aggressive is this defensive is this just a weird thing to say and I like the idea that Bran is here saying it is going to get warmer. I also, by the way, uh, wanted to say I looked it up. The raven was sent by Noah first and didn't come back and then was followed by a dove who did come back and eventually brought back on one of its trips, the olive branch.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I wonder how that kind of uh, affects the interpretation we're providing there, but I like it a lot. Yeah. I also like that point about the summer connected to the winter because there are definitely different ways you can take that in terms of the indication of what's coming next on the one hand the wolf is summer and summer is what fights against winter if winter Mm. is coming as a threat and something we need to prepare for then what better way to prepare than with summer at the same time is this brand losing some of his identity is this brand straying from the start Mm. from the the north we are winter winter is coming we that is our threat and brand is saying no this wolf my wolf is summer it's not winter
1: Or perhaps even the acceptance that there needs to be an evolution. Winter does need to eventually turn to summer. And to not is kind of holding oneself back in a way that it shouldn't, unnaturally so.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Well, that wraps us up right there. Uh, Next time, we're going to do three chapters. That is Catelyn 3, John 3, and Ned 4. So hopefully we'll get some immediate ideas of what that storm waiting for Catelyn was. Uh, we'll, We'll find out if she gets shipwrecked or not. And uh, that's where we're going to take it from here.
1: Good to talk to you, Dan. Talk Sorry, to you soon. Michael.
0: That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 3, John 3, and Ned 4. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast and following us on Twitter at Rose with Banners retweets reach out if you have any thoughts if we were wrong about anything but didn't correct it feel free to shout at us and any type of involvement we'd love to hear from you and we appreciate any recommendations you can provide thanks as always for listening